I think people think that if they've had a section, then they're not good enough. And, I, you know, I, I don't agree with that at all. It's also a very difficult thing to have, you know, from a mom's perspective. Um, and, and recovery is also hard. So both 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 types of delivery, you know, uh, will make you a mom. And it doesn't matter, you know. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, and everyone has different circumstances. So, you know, I, I completely agree with you. You know, it's, it's at the end of the day, it's mom's choice and it's how she feels. And obviously, it's the safety of mom and baby at the end of the day. Marhaba, I'm Karen Abu Jaude. I'm Sara Raslan. And I'm Mais Amran. Welcome to Al Umuma. Real talk, guys. We'll be taking you through all the stages of pregnancy and motherhood and diving into the stuff no one talks about. From fears and anxieties, sex drive, to social stigmas, we will be sharing our personal experiences with you. And of course, welcome various special guests to share their journeys and learnings too. And most importantly, hear from you, mamas. This is your podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram where we'll be taking all your awesome questions. Don't shy away, mamas, or even papas. All sorts of questions are welcome. Just remember, folks, we are not medical professionals. We are mamas sharing our experiences with you. All thoughts and opinions expressed are our own. Hello, hello, mamas and babas. Today we have a super special podcast up for you. A very interesting episode. Not only is the guest someone that is close to my heart, but close to also my son as she's literally delivered him. <laughs> Today on this episode, we have Dr. Dalia. Dr. Dalia, welcome to the Al Umuma podcast. We are beyond excited to have Dr. Dalia here with us on this episode. Hi, Dr. Dalia. Welcome. Hi. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, We're I'm so, so excited. excited. <laughs> yeah. It's always amazing to get the perspective of someone literally inside the field and the field being the vagina. <laughs> So it's it's nice to have a close up with someone, Dr. Dalia. We're very we're very excited to have you. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience um, for all those listeners out there who want to get to know you a little better? Sure. Um, so I um, I'm originally from Iraq. Um, I grew up here for a while. I went to school here, um, secondary school here uh, in Dubai. If you didn't know that, and then I moved to the UK and Ireland for. Um, Uh, for a really long time and I've moved back recently in the last two years I'm working in um, I'm working at Parkview Hospital uh, Mediclinic Parkview Hospital here in Dubai and I do um, obstetrics as you are aware and and I do gynecology as well so I do a bit of both So now we're just going to dig a little bit deeper on our trimesters with Dr. Dalia from trimester one, two to three First off, the very beautiful trimester one. <laughs> Seriously. Dr. Dalia, you have a lot of excited mamas coming to you and asking you, what shall I do? What should I focus on? So what kind of advice do you give mamas in their beginning, you know, in the beginning of their journey? What's the main thing you like to let them focus on or tell them to focus on in the first trimester? 
Um, yeah, so you're right. You see, I mean, you've, you've got different uh, reactions. You lots of people who are really anxious, lots of people who are really happy, um, people who are really worried because they exercise a lot and are worried that they're not going to be able to do that or, or their lifestyle is going to change. I mean, I think what I, what I, what I want, what I always say to people is that it's not a disease. You're just pregnant, you know? So, um, I mean, obviously the first trimester is quite rough, uh, because you have a lot of nausea and vomiting. But afterwards, when, you know, usually it subsides by 12 to 14 weeks. And usually after 14 weeks, people don't feel they're pregnant for a while. It's actually a really good phase in their pregnancy, which is obviously the second trimester, which we're going to be talking about soon. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think the main the main thing when they come to see me on their first visit is that I would recommend that they take folic acid, um, that they eat healthy. Um, we, we discuss, you know, the pregnancy and, you know, what what. You know, we talk about healthy eating, we talk about exercise, and, and we discuss what, um, you know, how, how the schedule looks, like how, what, what to expect, you know, for the next 40 weeks, and how often they should come and see me, and, you know, how often they should have their scans. So they, they've got a plan in place, and then they feel a bit more at ease. Now that's amazing, and just to 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 echo the to echo nausea here, Doctor Dalia. Um, I know I you know I suffered from nausea for almost my full pregnancy, but in the first trimester it was the heaviest, even for Karen. Is there a specific medications that or forms of medication you would advise against when it comes to nausea? Because you know at times you would take, let's say, paracetamol or just the off-the-shelf. Is there something in specific when pregnant to avoid? Um, not necessarily, but I mean, usually the nausea, it doesn't happen in everyone, but usually when it does happen, it starts at around six to seven weeks and it will subside by 12 to 14 weeks. The problem is that, of course, when you're nauseated and you're vomiting, it's going to affect your, you know, uh, your mood, it's going to affect your work, it's going to affect, you know, your home life. So it's quite horrible, um, and it's really important to try and control those symptoms. What I would say to begin with is that you need to try and eat um, regularly, um, you know, very so small amounts regularly, so you don't leave it like just breakfast, lunch, and dinner, so that your nausea, it actually does help your nausea. And eat foods that are high in carbs, like potato, rice, pasta, um, dry crackers. Um, ginger sometimes really helps but sometimes it can um, upset your stomach. Um, you can do complementary therapies like acupuncture, sometimes that helps as well. And I would definitely avoid any spicy foods or um, anything that triggers you know, indigestion or you know, might trigger uh, the nausea to come back. Um, so that's what I would usually say. And I think if your symptoms don't resolve by doing these small measures, then I would definitely um, recommend some medication. And most of the medication we prescribe is safe in pregnancy. We usually start on something um, something natural like vitamin B6. It's really good for nausea. So there's something called Vominor that's available in Dubai that you could take. But I think it might be, uh, I think you might need a prescription for that. Um, and then there's something else called Vomicure, which is literally just ginger. And it's quite good. Like if you take it about um, two to four times a day, it will help with your nausea. If those medications don't, you know, improve, then obviously we would need to give you something stronger that's also safe in your pregnancy. Dr. Dalia, um, since we're talking about nausea, I remember in the first trimester, one of the first things that I noticed was the extreme fatigue. Now, from what I remember and what I understand is that your body is actually going through so many changes. Your hormones are now noticing, okay, I am pregnant and everything starts to 
everything in the body is triggered to sort of create the safe environment for baby to grow. So a lot is going on in the first trimester. Could you take us through what is happening inside of the woman's body right now? What is happening to mama? What is happening to baby to trigger those, you know, uh, symptoms actually, because it's not for no reason. <laughs> a lot is going on, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, look, the main thing as well is that, um, so, you know, in the beginning of pregnancy, obviously the baby's starting to form and the baby's producing, you know, and, and your pregnancy, in your pregnancy, you're producing a lot of pregnancy hormones, which are very similar to your thyroid hormones. And they also act a bit on your thyroid, which gives you that, that feeling where it's a bit like you have an overactive thyroid where you're very nauseated, you're tired, you don't feel yourself. Um, and also your wound is growing, so you're going to get these pains and these cramps. Uh, so it's really a combination of things. Um, it's, I mean, honestly, yes, it is tough. It gets better with, with subsequent pregnancies in most people. Um, but by 14 weeks, most people feel really good again and are really happy. So it's just about trying to persevere. I mean, obviously, if you, you know, sometimes if it gets too much, if you're vomiting a lot and you can't cope, then we always recommend that you come into hospital. You can have some fluids, even if you don't stay in. You just stay in for four hours and we can give you some vitamins through a drip, which will really help you, you know, and at least you can manage for the next few days. That's great. Could you, uh, I actually didn't know, I didn't ever thought about going for a, like a drip at the hospital. I feel like that's very helpful for people to know that mm -hmm. it is available. I actually went to, I did drips quite a few times um, during my pregnancy because I would, as Dr. Dahlia knows, I'd vomit a lot. Um, so my nausea was very severe and I couldn't keep anything in and I got dehydrated. So I had to go through drips. But yeah, absolutely. It's it's definitely needed. And if, if, if you feel overwhelmed with your exhaustion, especially after a long day or a long few hours of nausea, definitely go into or check with your gyno and ask if you need to go through the drips. And it's it's very simple. It's very nice and refreshing. It's rejuvenating for the body as well. Yeah. And, and like, you don't have to stay overnight. We do it as a day case. So it's four mm -hmm. hours where you get some fluids, uh, you get the vitamins that you need through the drips. And then honestly, most people feel so much better when they go home and they're able to, to cope. Um, I'm not saying everyone needs it, but if you feel like you're really um, tired and you're not able to cope, you're not able to keep anything in, then, you know, it's going to affect your baby and it's going to affect you. So, you, you know, you need to, to get help. No, you're absolutely right. I wanted to ask you about weight gain in the first trimester. So I'm sure you're aware of the, of the Middle Eastern myth almost. You're eating for two, which we all now know is, is, is bullshit. <laughs> for lack of better words for the in the first trimester do you recommend that mama should gain any weight at all i mean look it varies from person to person obviously but uh, generally the rule is is that you won't gain uh, so we would say to, to i would say to my patients when they first see me is that they should try and and monitor their weight gain you know every week or whenever they come to their appointment you know, we, we should weigh them on the scale just to keep an eye on things. But generally, in your pregnancy, you shouldn't be gaining more than 12 to 15 kilos. Okay. So in your first trimester, and yes, you're, you're right, don't eat for two. I mean, yes, after six months, um, you might need to increase your calorie intake, but like maybe have two extra toasts or something, but not by that much. Um, but in the first trimester, because of the nausea and vomiting, most people don't actually gain weight. 
they lose weight or they gain a kilo, you know, or, or two, but they don't gain that much. Um, it's so from your second trimester thereafter, you, you may gain about half a kilo a week, but it also varies, you know. Um, but we, we, you know, the way to kind of control your weight gain is also by exercising and making sure that once your nausea subsides, not to try and and eat lots of like foods like ice cream and, and chocolate and crisps, you know, to try and control that as well. Because I know when you're pregnant, you also ha- you also crave a lot of things. I think this takes me to my next question for the first trimester. It was the NIPT test. And I know not all mamas and babas want to go ahead with that decision and take that test. Um, And not everybody has to take the test. So it's the non-invasive prenatal test. Dr. Dalia, can you tell us who who fits in the category of must take this test? So uh, from a medical standpoint, the NIPT test, you know, I would generally recommend to people who um, have a family history of any abnormalities so these you know patients might be really anxious the first time they come and they can't wait till 12 weeks to find out and they want to know earlier um, it's also useful um, for moms who are above 35 years because that risk of the baby having any abnormalities slightly increases it doesn't increase by much it only slightly increases and i mean i know in in the middle east the nipt is mainly done to find the gender of the baby but um we um, we generally do it to make sure that the baby doesn't have any um, chromosomal abnormalities. And now we can also do some genetics, so we can also test for any genetic problems. So the common genetic problems as well can be tested within that. It's usually done at um, 10 weeks. Uh, the reason we don't like to do it before 10 weeks is because we need to take a blood sample from mom, and there will be so we need to make sure that there's enough DNA of the baby in mom. So, so that we can analyze it. And it's usually by 10 weeks that there will be enough and we'll be able to tell you whether the baby um, has any abnormalities. Um, and we can also tell you the gender, which is quite nice because some people want to know a bit earlier. Um, and it doesn't take long to come back. Usually it takes about four or five working days. It's incredible how science and technology has evolved because, Dr. Dahlia, if I'm not mistaken, this test actually used to be extremely invasive. They used to take a needle inside of mama and actually take the blood from inside. Now, you can actually see the genetics of your child in your own blood. Insane. I thought that was fascinating, right? It's crazy. I mean, we can even, I mean, in the UK now, what they're doing as well, which is really nice, is that they're testing the baby's blood group as well. So um, to check if, because if your blood group is negative, um, sometimes you need an injection called anti-D during your pregnancy. But but now what what they are starting to do in the UK is they test the baby's uh, blood group through this test. And and then you don't need the anti-D injection if your baby's blood group is negative as well. I mean, this is, I know, it's a bit complicated, but it's quite, you know, it's quite good. So, um, incredible, incredible. Since we're talking about baby, um, I just want to focus in a little bit on what baby is doing. So I remember from the first scan that I ever took, I think it was at like eight weeks that I had my first scan from eight to 12 weeks. I saw a huge difference in what baby, you know, from my point of view, what baby looked like, but from, your point of view as a medical professional, can you tell us a little bit about the big milestones baby goes through in this trimester? You know, from, you know, brain development to physical development to all other factors. So I would love to know a little more about that. 
So generally when you come for your, say if you come a bit early at your five or six week scan, what you'll see is probably just a pregnancy sac and a yolk sac, which eventually becomes a placenta. By seven weeks, uh, most people will be able to see the, the, the baby starting to form, but it looks like a tadpole, so you're not going to actually see a baby, but you'll see a heartbeat, which is really nice. And then um, as your pregnancy progresses, the baby starts to, you know, um, starts to form, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, it starts to look like a human, you know. Um, so by by 12 weeks, when you have your 12-week scan, you'll notice that the baby's like, it's almost fully formed, but obviously it's a very, very small baby and everything is quite immature. Um, but you'll see a head, you'll see the limbs, you'll see the baby's back, uh, you'll see the heartbeat. And usually babies around the 12 week um, mark measure between six to seven centimeters. So, and, and, and at seven weeks, they usually measure about six, seven millimeters. So you can see the big progression, which is, is quite nice. That's incredible. Dr. Dahlia, with all of this um, progress happening in, in, in mama's body, when should mama consider an emergency has occurred in her body and needs to contact her OBGYN? Okay, so in your first trimester, um, obviously there's so I mean there's always a very very small risk of a miscarriage, and that's why lots of people may be a bit anxious in the in the, in the beginning of the pregnancy. So things to look out for, obviously, are so. You know, it is normal to have cramps. So not everyone with cramps means that they're having a miscarriage. It's just that your, you know, your body's just, you know, adjusting. Your wound is, you know, getting bigger. Um, so it's quite normal. But if your cramps are quite severe and they're not going away, then I would be worried and I would make my way into hospital. Um, bleeding also, it's not normal in pregnancy. It doesn't mean that it will end in a miscarriage, but it's very important that if you start to notice that you're having any bleeding, come into hospital because what we can do is just check you out, uh, make sure everything is okay. Sometimes uh, with bleeding, we can give you a bit of progesterone support. Um, so, um, you know, so these are the most important signs. Things like a urine infection, they can predispose you to a miscarriage as well. So if you start to have any discomfort while you're passing urine, or um, if you've noticed an offensive smell in your discharge, your vaginal discharge, for example, those are also things that you need to um, let your doctor know about because you don't, you, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to develop an infection because you obviously a pregnancy also your immunity is a bit lower and you don't want to develop an infection that predisposes you to um uh you know to a miscarriage or anything like that oh that's so interesting i didn't even think about urinary infections right. uh in the first trimester it's like you totally forget about these that's things true. um mm. so that's why everyone who is pregnant needs to do a urine test in the beginning of the pregnancy just so we make sure that they don't have anything going on Speaking of infections, we actually have one of the questions from our listeners. She asked about specifically yeast infections and hemorrhoids. How is that something you can control during your first trimester of pregnancy or even just throughout your pregnancy? So um, it's really unlikely to develop those symptoms in the first trimester, uh, from my experience. You're usually more likely to develop them in your third trimester. And I mean, for example, or your second, I mean, with, with yeast infections, unfortunately, it's just because of the estrogen that you're producing. You're producing so many hormones. So you're predisposing, you know, it's, you're, you're, you're obviously going to develop a yeast infection. What, what's important to know is that it does not affect your baby. 
Um, a lot of people who, who develop yeast infections or have discharge that's itchy, they feel like they're dirty and they keep washing themselves. And unfortunately, that doesn't help the situation because you're actually removing a natural flora of, of the vagina and you're, um, you know, uh, so, uh, so it gets worse. So what I would recommend is definitely go see your doctor so you can get a swab, confirm that it is a yeast infection, and we can give you an ovule, um, a vaginal ovule that you can insert overnight. And that is pretty safe. Uh, you, you will feel better. You won't feel as as uncomfortable. And things that you should do as well is try to wear loose clothing. Um, make sure that your underwear is cotton. Um, try, uh, try not to use any perfume products when you wash down there. Um, you know, just to kind of reduce that risk. But it does, sometimes it's inevitable, even if you do anything, it is inevitable. And, and, and usually a suppository is all you need and, and it goes away. Um, with regards to hemorrhoids, I mean, the risk factor obviously is pregnancy because as your bump gets bigger, you know, obviously it's going to cause, the, you know, the hemorrhoids to, to get worse, uh, particularly when you're in labor and when you're pushing. Um, the other thing is um, uh, you're, you're, you're more prone to developing constipation in pregnancy because of your hormones. So you have to really be more more conscious that you try to have a very high fiber diet. And if you are if you are one to suffer with constipation, then try and you know buy a laxative, the natural one, like or a smooth or a stool softener like Movicol or Fibogel or Lactulose or anything that's natural that you can take so that you can reduce that risk of the hemorrhoids developing. Uh, amazing, very very insightful, really really great information to know. Um, I actually want to jump into the second trimester. Yeah, let's do it. So many things in the second trimester. 100%. The top things that come to my mind that I remember, Mace, I'm sure you remember because it's probably fresher in your mind. Mm. One is the disgusting diabetes test, <laughs> but necessary. And the second is the... Um, the 20-week scan. So there are actually a couple of milestones in the second trimester. Dr. Dalia, can you tell us a little bit about um, these milestones, those that 20-week scan, the gestational diabetes exam? Sure. So, uh, so your second trimester starts mainly from, you know, 13 weeks and, you know, 12, 13 weeks. And usually by then, you know, the nausea is gone. You're feeling a little bit better. You're feeling a bit more you're more like yourself. Um, so the main milestones are once you've done your 12-week scan or your NIPT, the next big scan would be the 20-week scan. And by then, most of the organs have, are fully formed. So that scan is mainly just to make sure that baby's okay, baby's looking healthy, that there's nothing that we need to be, you know, aware of. So, they, you know, it's a one-hour scan. It takes takes uh, it takes quite some time to do, but and it's usually done by one of the fetal medicine specialists. And what they do is they look at the baby's heart in more detail, they look at the baby's brain in more detail, uh, they look at the baby's facial features, they count the fingers, they count the toes. Obviously, um, we are usually able to tell you the gender, you know, by 16, 17 weeks, and then at your 20-week scan, that will be confirmed as well. Um, so it's a it's a really important uh, milestone, as you mentioned, because. Once that scan, you know, so once you're reassured and the baby's healthy, then at least you can enjoy the rest of your pregnancy and you know that, you know, it's likely that things will go very well. Um, the diabetes test is done between 24 and 28 weeks of pregnancy. Now, we offer it to everyone. I know it's a horrible test to do and lots of people feel uh, really sick after drinking that sugar drink. Um, <laughs> But, but it's really important, particularly in the Middle East, with our diet and with our lifestyle and with our family history. So it's more common, obviously, in people whose ethnicities are Asian or Arab. Um, it's more common in, in, in people who have a, have a mother, a father, or a sibling with 
whether it's type 1 or type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. It's also more common if you have a BMI over 30. So if you're slightly overweight, then yes, your risk is slightly higher, and that's why we, we need to do um, the test. And it's really important to do the test just because if you are diabetic, we can, you know, at least we can get it under control. You know, we, yes, unfortunately, you're going to have to monitor your sugars, you know, and you might need to, I mean, might need to, you know, work with the endocrinologist and with the dietitian to change your diet a bit. And it might be that you don't even need any medication. But if, if, for example, your sugars are still quite high, sometimes we can give you some medication that's quite safe, but it will at least make sure that you don't gain too much weight in pregnancy, that your sugars are within the normal range and it doesn't affect the baby as well. Is there anything mama can do to avoid um, uh, gestational diabetes? Or it's خلاص, if it's if it's in the family history and if it's, you know, with, with the things that the the criteria, as you just mentioned, it's almost impossible to avoid? No, I, I, I don't believe that. I mean, yes, sometimes it's inevitable, but generally with most people and with most, you know, it's lifestyle really. So I think it's just about your diet. Try and, you know, from, you know, and it's not from when you're pregnant, just generally try and be healthy, you know, and try and and always include exercise in your lifestyle. I know it's hard, you know, it's hard. it's easier it's easier said than done, obviously, when you're working, you're especially working moms um, living in Dubai, it's quite tough to, you know, find time for yourself, but you need to do some exercise and that will prevent you from developing diabetes in your pregnancy. And if you're someone, I mean, I know we haven't spoken about exercise yet, but maybe this is a good time. If you haven't exercised, you know, before your pregnancy, then what I would would, would recommend is it's a slow progression, you know, a gradual progression. So you do 15 minutes of continuous exercise three times a week, and then you start to increase it gradually to 30 minute sessions, you know, every day. And things that you can do are swimming, walking, uh, prenatal yoga, uh, muscle strengthening exercises twice a week. That's really good for you as well. You know, it'll just you know, it'll improve your mood, it'll improve your sleep, it'll prevent diabetes, and it will control your weight gain, it will reduce you developing things like uh, preeclampsia. Um, and, and you know, it was in the past, I, I know it's an old wives' tale where they tell you you need to sit in bed because you're pregnant. Now, you know, if your doctor's happy and if you don't have any problems in your pregnancy, then you should be able to, to, to exercise regularly. The only thing is just don't bump the bump. That's it. <laughs> Don't bump the bump. I love that. <laughs> Actually, you know what, Mace? Um, uh, this is a big theme for us in so many episodes that we've been recording. And all the professionals that we have on our show are always talking about exercise. It's like yeah. a sign, listeners. It's never too late. It's good for you. It's good for baby. Honestly, I remember it made me feel so good to just move a little bit. Yeah. Mace is your prime example. She was really fit during her pregnancy. She was exercising all the time. I mean, you can probably shed some light into this as well, Mace, right? Yeah, no, I did. I I even taught yoga till almost eight months of my pregnancy. I didn't stop. I, I continued running. And I remember I kept going to Dr. Dahlia. I kept asking, like, is it okay? Because my husband, Mazen, he'd be in the room, and I'm sure you remember, he would always be panicked. Like, are you sure she should be running? Like, are you sure she should be doing this intensive exercises, this and that? Um, of course, at the time, we talked about the intensity of the exercises and how to control them. But at all times, Dr. Dahlia gave me the green light. Yes, you are doing great. And what you're doing is just fine. And don't bump the bump. <laughs> no, but you did really well. You didn't develop diabetes. Your labor was lovely. You did really well. 
Dr. Dalia, uh, <laughs> just to make sure here, the general rule of thumb with exercise is you can continue to do what you've been doing before. So if you were running or doing yoga for like four hours a day and you're pregnant, there's no reason to stop this unless you're advised otherwise, correct? So obviously there are some medical conditions that predispose, you know, that make you slightly higher risk where you probably can't exercise. But uh, if your if your doctor deems that everything is all right, then you know I, I think that do what you're used to doing. Um, but obviously, you know, you you're more likely to get out of breath. You're more likely to be tired because obviously you've got a bump. So if you feel tired or you're out of breath, you know, take a break and modify things a bit. You know, so uh, you know. I don't expect you to do a marathon or run non-stop. You don't take breaks regularly. And, and obviously, like I said, if you haven't exercised, it's not probably not good for you to just start doing a four-hour like run of exercises. Start increasing it gradually. But generally, what we would say is try to do 150 minutes a week. Okay, that's good. 150 that's good minutes know. a week, ladies. Yalla, that's great. Um, that made me think about some of the things that... Um, start to come up actually mainly in the third trimester. I remember the third trimester observing uh, the placenta, the position of the baby, um, and what's going on in there. So that sort of triggered a memory for me and uh, making sure uh, things keep going according to plan. Because in the third trimester, you can really start to gauge what kind of birth you're going to have, you know, right. if the placenta isn't obstructing the... Uh, um, the way out for baby, or if the baby is still breech, um, third trimester is a lot of like, okay, where am I right now? Where is baby right now? So Dr. Dalia, can you talk to us a little bit about that? What's going on in third trimester? What are some medical um, landmarks or medical um, markers that you keep um, an eye on at this stage? So, um so at your 20-week scan, the doctor has a look at the placenta and checks if the placenta is low-lying or not. And sometimes the placenta can be low-lying. Um, it, it's only, it only remains low-lying in 1% of pregnancies thereafter. So usually by your 32, 36 weeks, the placenta has moved away. But that's one of the, you know, you're right to, to say that. I mean, that's one of the important things to look at because you want to make sure that the placenta is at least two centimeters away so that if you were to aim for a natural delivery that it, the placenta wouldn't be in the way and would allow the head to, to come down. Um, the other thing is uh, the baby obviously as it's growing it's, it's not you know before 36 weeks it's still relatively small and it, it just and there's lots of fluid around and it's just moving around so one day it could be lying across one day it could be upside down one day it could be breached you know so it doesn't really matter but when it it does matter at your so your 36 week mark which is the four weeks before delivery is, is really important because on that on that consultation we need to make sure that the baby's head down so we know what we're going to be dealing with are and the placenta is not low so are we going for a normal delivery is everything okay is the head down um so uh, you know because if it's breach after 36 weeks it's really unlikely that it's going to turn on its own is is that when you know what kind of birth you're going to be having is it that is that like on week 36 you'd you'd have a more clear understanding of what birth you're going to be having say i mean obviously uh you know if if it's not head down uh, or if the percent is low lying then yes you know that you're probably going to need a cesarean section at 39 weeks 
if it is breach, um, then sometimes we can offer you a procedure called an ECV where we try and turn the baby around. Um, it's worth trying. It's the risk of complications associated with it is, is really, really small. Um, you know, and it's very, and it's done on the labor wards where it's safe. So if there is anything, if the baby gets distressed, we can deliver the baby right away. But it's extremely unlikely that this would ever happen. I have not, not actually seen that um, in all my years. Um, and it, it has a 50 to 60% chance of success. So it's not always successful. Um, and it lasts for about five minutes two to three minutes. So it's not that painful, but it's worth trying if someone wants to aim for a normal delivery. I remember um, a lot of female, a lot of mama friends out there feeling really concerned about certain things like uh, for example, Dr. Dahlia, the umbilical cord Mm -hmm. wrapping around baby's neck. See, I've heard some two sides of this. So one mama who is uh, whose umbilical cord was tied around baby's neck and I think had other complications, had to opt in for a C-section. But I also know another mama whose uh, the umbilical cord was wrapped around baby's neck but wasn't tight enough to be, you know, a scary thing. So they, she was still able to deliver naturally and then they removed the, the tie around baby's neck. So I feel like this is such a gray area. It's yeah. really hard to put a finger on it. But can you talk about that a little bit for us? clarify it yeah i mean it is like we generally as a routine we don't usually scan scan to look for the cord around the neck because in most babies the cord will be around the neck at some point but you have to remember that there's a lot of fluid around the baby so it's not and the cord is really long so it's never going to be so tight um and it's you know never gonna you know so it's really unlikely to be associated with any problems and even during labor you know if um if you're being monitored during labor the whole time, we, we keep monitoring the baby's heart rate. So we know if the cord is around the baby's neck and if it's a little bit tight, sometimes the baby's heart rate um, takes a while to recover. And then obviously we might need to do something about that. But in most cases, it's quite uncomplicated. And even if the cord is around the neck, we most moms will deliver naturally with no problems at all, with no effects on the baby. So it's actually nothing to worry about. What about if the baby was oversized or like, quite big let's yeah, say Sada, yeah Sada had a very <laughs> Sada had a very big baby Ayush was That's very true. big and she was 4.5 she said right I believe 4. like 5. over La, 4.5 maybe 4.2 kilos yeah, yeah over four kilos well Dr. Dali I don't <laughs> yeah I recall her telling me that actually um you see so uh, for example Sarah your friend has a very petite frame as well and uh, and sometimes you know obviously with big babies it might be harder to, to deliver so if you don't progress so if you're if you're if you're not so if you're not dilating as fast as you should or if you're not dilating at all or if the head doesn't come down really well then those are signs that maybe the baby is is, is, is very large and, and it's not and it's not going down the birth canal you know appropriately or it's in or the baby's position is not the right position so those are indications that you might need a cesarean section. Sometimes it's genetic as well, you know, uh, to have a big baby. If you if you do have the first baby um, via C-section, does that mean that your next baby and the next pregnancies have to also go through C-sections? Is there no hope for mama to go through vaginal birth after the first C-section? No, not necessarily. Um, obviously, um, what we say to, to moms, so it just depends on what happened the last time. You know, how far had she progressed? You know, did she get to, uh, you know, did she get to almost 10 centimeters dilated? 
uh, how big was her baby? How did her pregnancy go? Did she labor naturally? You know, so these are all things that we look at. You know, what what is her current status? You know, is what is her um, BMI? Uh, you know, how uh, how does how does the you know how is the baby lying? What's the baby's weight? And generally, if everything is going well in the second pregnancy and it's quite uncomplicated, what I would always tell them is that if you want to try for a natural labor, then it's the best thing to do is to just wait until the labor starts. Because if the labor starts, then your chances of having a successful normal delivery is is quite high. So it's about 75%. But if um, you were to be induced, that risk of, of it failing is a lot higher. So I don't usually recommend an induction. I like to wait for the labor to start naturally. Can I actually just bring up a, um, a perspective here, um, especially here in the Middle East? Actually, this is a global thing. This happens in the West. There is so much C-section shaming. Oh, yeah. People, like, there is so much stigma on women opting in for a C-section. You know, they've planned it before, but... You know, actually, healing from a C-section is actually so much harder than a vaginal birth. Right. And I just wanted to bring it up to everyone listening that support your friends, your partners, no matter what kind of birth they choose, because at the end of the day, it is a very personal choice Absolutely. on having a vaginal delivery versus a C-section delivery. And both kinds of deliveries make you moms. Absolutely. So you don't get a gold medal because you pushed your baby out of your vagina. It's the same. And I just really want to, I just wanted to bring it up because it was something on my mind for a couple of days. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think people think that if they've had a section, then they're not good enough. And I, you know, I, I don't agree with that at all. It's also a very difficult thing to have, you know, from a mom's perspective. Um, and, and recovery is also hard. So both, both, both types of delivery, you know, uh, will make you a mom and it doesn't matter, you know, it's just, mm -hmm. you know, and everyone has different circumstances. So, you know, I, I completely agree with you, you know, it's, it's at the end of the day, it's mom's choice and it's how she feels. And obviously it's the safety of mom and baby at the end of the day. And I also feel like I need to highlight the fact that you're still a super mama if you deliver baby with um, pain, uh, medication or control, like for example, <laughs> epidural. Uh, I had this discussion with Dr. Dahlia before as well, where um, a lot of a lot of my friends, my girlfriends, refuse or don't want to take epidural. Where they, I had a couple where they almost had their baby in in proper danger and themselves as well because they were like, "No, no, I need to do this naturally. Don't give me the epidural. Don't turn me into C-section. I don't want to do this." Um, regardless of how you birth, as Karen is saying, and Dr. Dahlia, you are still a wonderful mother who carried for nine months so just don't forget that thanks for highlighting and emphasizing on that both karen and dr dalia having an epidural also is fine you know i know a lot of moms think oh no that like you know they've, they, they haven't been through the pain and it's not you know and they want to and, and they feel like they they they, they weren't good enough because they got an epidural and no actually the epidural sometimes is really beneficial because if you're in a lot of discomfort and you get an epidural it helps to relax you so it doesn't increase the risk of you needing a cesarean section you know um so you know if you feel like okay actually i'm not coping my labor is taking a really long time and i've lost my energy i haven't slept then get an epidural it's fine it will not increase your risk of needing a cesarean section 
Actually, Dr. Dalia, that's exactly what happened with me. I, um, I remember getting my contractions in the evening and they actually progressed quite quickly throughout the night. I was so tired. I was, I remember crying, not just from the pain of labor, but I was crying because all I wanted to do was sleep. Thinking about it is making me tear up because all I wanted to do was sleep. So I went to the hospital twice asking them, how dilated am I? Shoot me up with the drugs right now. I just want to sleep. I don't care. And getting that epidural really helped me rest because when it came time to push, I needed that rest. Yeah. It is hard to push. You, you were energized after that. Yeah. yeah. You just needed sleep. Yeah, and I think honestly, you know, imagine not sleeping all night and being in labor. Like you have to be a superwoman, right? At least with an epidural, you get a bit of sleep, you get some energy, so when it's time to push, you know, and 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 you know, you do have a better feeling because we do reduce it a little bit so that you can push with us. So honestly, I don't think that that should be, you know, I don't think you should be worried about having it because it definitely does not increase your risk of experience. I told Dr. Dahlia that I was so keen on a natural delivery. And this is why I want to be very frank uh, about my experience because I went to you and I said, I want to opt for a natural birth as much as possible, meaning not even uh, to have any induction or or epidural or, you know, and what was so wonderful about Dr. Dahlia, she just, you know, looked at me, she nodded, she was so supportive with my decisions. And, you know, the only thing she would tell me is, I'll let you know when we need to go further or we need to take things into a different direction, which was amazing. And she let me be and I let myself be, which um, resulted in three days early labor. (laughs) And I remember the second day of early labor, I went to her office and the only thing I said to her at her door was, get this baby out of me. (laughs) It wasn't, I want to do the natural uh, journey anymore. It was, how can we induce? When can we induce? How soon can I induce? When can I get the drugs? You're definitely entertaining. (laughs) Dude, I was I was done. <laughs> so, uh, which which leaves me, which brings me actually to when I went beforehand to Doctor Dahlia at the end of my week thirty eight, um, hoping to also go through this natural journey, and we did a sweep. Isn't that right, Doctor Dahlia? Yes, that is right. So, with the sweeps, do you recommend them being at a certain uh, a certain week of your pregnancy? And if not the sweep, do you recommend anything else? Because I understand there is also the um, oxytocin drip, right. to induce labor, right? Yeah. I mean, look, the sweep is a bit more natural. Um, so usually, if uh, you're like a bit fed up and everything, sometimes we do offer you a sweep, and you can only do that when your cervix is slightly uh, dilated. So you can't do it if your cervix is closed. So if your cervix is like a about one centimeter or half a centimeter, then what we do really is just a little bit of a stretch when we're assessing you. And it's supposed to release natural prostaglandins to start your labor off. Now, it doesn't always work. Um, you know, sometimes you might need more than one sweep. You know, you might need two or three. The, the, the downfall is that it's a bit uncomfortable. But she was saying that the sweep doesn't always work, Karen. Well, it didn't work for me, that's for sure. And we did around, um, I think, three sweeps, Dr. Dahlia, if, that's, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Ah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, it doesn't... It doesn't always work, uh, but at least then you're not... So, you know, at least, you know, if you're fed up and you really don't want to be induced, uh, sometimes it might help speed things up, you know, if, if things haven't happened yet. Um, it's particularly useful when you have, like, a previous cesarean because you can't really induce her. So the best thing to do is a sweep because sometimes that might trigger the labor and then you don't, you, you know, and then you don't have to actually give her, um, you know, the oxytocin that you were talking about. 
Oh, so are there any other options available aside from the sweep that's a bit more, you know, natural? Um, so, you know, the midwives will always tell you to have eat pineapple, um, have sex. Um, With sex, I actually just want to clarify something. You actually have to orgasm, right? No, well, not necessarily. Okay. I was like, I need to orgasm. <laughs> Regular sex won't work. <laughs> for the contractions, you mean? Yeah, like, so you can contract for, internally? For you to have that natural oxytocin, ah. right? No, it, it'll just trigger. I mean, it, no, not necessarily, but it can trigger like labor. It doesn't always. I mean, look, there's no evidence, but, you know, we do say do that. Sometimes castor oil works, but the only problem with castor oil is that it causes a lot of diarrhea and a lot of tightening. So I wouldn't always recommend it. Okay. I know with sex also, Karen, it's the it's the, the male sperm that actually lubricates the uh, cervix, if I'm not mistaken, which helps you v- dilate a bit faster or a bit better. Really? Um, yeah, but not. But I didn't hear about the orgasm bit either. Oh, then that was just me putting unnecessary <laughs> pressure <laughs> on my on my husband. <laughs> oh my god, I love it. I actually, Doctor Dalia, we got some questions um, from some of our listeners. I wanted to ask you. Um, Since now we've talked about all three trimesters, we've talked about birth and um, induction. One question that was asked was, what are some factors that could increase risk or complications during your entire pregnancy? So um, is it like, uh, we know smoking, alcohol, could having previous miscarriages cause more complications or increased risk or carrying multiples Uh, so could you tell us a little bit some of those a little bit about some of those factors that could do that? Sure. Um, so obviously it's about so you as a person, your age, your BMI, these are all you know your medical history. So if you're one that ha- suffers with uh, you know a number of medical problems, then obviously your pregnancy is going to be a higher risk pregnancy. Um, people uh, can develop preeclampsia in their pregnancy, which is high blood pressure, which is why every time you come see the doctors, particularly after 24 weeks, you get your blood pressure checked and your urine uh, checked just to make sure that you don't develop that. It's more common in moms in their first pregnancies, moms who are over 40, and moms who have a high BMI of 30. Um, you know, gestational diabetes, we, 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 talk, we talked about that as well. That can also increase you know, complications, increase the, you know, risks in your pregnancy. So that's why you need to exercise. Um, smoking, yes, I would definitely not recommend anyone smoking their pregnancy because it can affect the baby's weight. You can have a small baby. Um, it can also um, uh, cause problems with the placenta later on in the pregnancy. So we would definitely not recommend that you smoke in your pregnancy. Um, alcohol, you know, it's better to cut down. You know, it's better not to drink. You know, you can have it on occasion, you know, if, if need be, but it's better not to. Um, multiple pregnancy is always a higher risk pregnancy anyway and um, unfortunately um, you will be seeing the doctor a lot you will have lots of scans because we have to make sure that both babies are growing you know well as both are growing at the same rate um, and that you're not developing things like diabetes or high, high blood pressure and all of those sort of things in your pregnancy um, people with previous miscarriages um, obviously there's going to be a lot of anxiety as well in, in that pregnancy so We sometimes see them a little bit more often. Usually in their first trimester, we give them aspirin to reduce the risk of developing another um, uh, miscarriage. Um, 
but yeah, and we would we would um, if they have had a late miscarriage in their previous pregnancies, then sometimes we would need to monitor their length the length of their cervix on on, on their visits, and we need to make sure that they don't develop any infection. So they would be needing regular scan, uh, regular urine checks, and regular swabs, vaginal swabs, just to make sure they don't have an infection. So really, like, so the majority of people who have a really straightforward pregnancy, there are only a few people that where their pregnancy becomes higher risk. Um, and generally they'll be cared for. It's just that they have to see us a lot more often. That's all. I have another question from a listener asking about her umbilical hernia. Apparently she's delivered it now um, after, her, after she delivered and um, is asking, is there any way to naturally get rid of the umbilical hernia? And if not, is the procedure necessary? Yeah, so um, generally we advise them to use the support belt, uh, you know, afterwards, the, the abdominal binder afterwards, because sometimes that will help to reduce the hernia. And usually it, it, it's, in, in, in some cases it will subside on its own within six weeks. Um, and we would refer them to physio for like, you know, uh, for, you know, obviously not right away after six weeks or so, just see if there's any exercises that they need to do. But if it doesn't subside, then generally they've got two options. If they were to have another pregnancy and say, for example, they were having a cesarean section, then we ask the general surgeon to come in at the same time and they'll repair the hernia for them at the same time. If um, they're having a normal delivery, then once their family is complete, we would ask the um, uh, we, I would refer them to the general surgeons where they can have the hernia repaired. And it's a really minor procedure. It's a day case. And then they go home on the same day. Oh, wow. Amazing. That's great to know. Um, another question from our listener is, can too much ultrasound hurt the baby? No, not at all. It's just, it's, there's no radiation in ultrasound. So um, it's, it's completely safe. It's the way we monitor the baby's heart. Um, and it has no effect on the baby whatsoever. So, you know, even if you've had like 100 scans in your pregnancy, there's nothing to worry about. Um, that's really good to know because I know here in the UAE, because we have um, private healthcare versus places like the UK or Canada um, that are more public healthcare, we tend to do more scans here because, you know, you can bill them to your insurance. Um, so a lot of people actually have asked us this question. I know I asked this when I was pregnant. So thank you for, for letting us know that it's safe. It's very good to know that. I mean, the reason that we don't do as many scans in the UK is because of the, the, the peer pressure and the loads of patients that you see. So, you know, you would see so many more patients in a, in a, in a morning session that you don't have time. So you just listen to the baby's heart and you would measure the mom's bump. And if the mom's bump doesn't measure, you know, if it's not measuring appropriate for the number of weeks she is, then you would refer her for a scan. And it's the only way because you, no one, you know, you, you, we don't have, they don't have the resources to scan everyone. Dr. Dahlia, I said thank you and that I loved you when you first delivered my boy. <laughs> and I'm going to say it again for shedding so much light on this knowledge and information and just educating women and men out there about the, you know, first three trimesters of your pregnancy, mamas. So I can't thank you enough for everything that you have been doing for me personally and now for this podcast family, Al-Umuma. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for your time and for your information and insights. I love you. I genuinely do. Like, <laughs> I really love her. Nice. You're so cute. I'm so emotional right now. I love you. 
thank you so much for having me. It's it's a real pleasure, honestly. Um, I love being on the show with you girls, and it was so easy. Thank you so much. It was really nice. You have a really good rapport with each other, and it, it was really enjoyable. Amazing. Thank you for your time, Dr. Dalia. Oh, ma'asalame. Yatikilafia, ma'asalame. Thank you, girls. Bye bye.